Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part two in our series on the problem of evil. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I might encourage you to go back and listen to that first. There's a helpful introduction as well as a pretty in-depth exploration of the book of Job. And uh, exploring and maybe starting there is going to kind of help build on some important concepts as we get into today's episode. So if you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to go back and give that a listen first. You don't have to, uh, but might be helpful. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Who's responsible for it? How are we to respond to evil and suffering? And what does all of this do to our picture of God and what he is like? We're beginning our study in the biblical text. We're eventually going to move out from here and into church history and explore the perspectives of of theologians from all the way back in the first and second century to present day as they've attempted to grapple with this problem of evil as they've attempted to grapple with the text. But I want to begin with the text. I want to begin with the scriptures. And last episode, we did a a detailed exploration of the book of Job because Job is frequently cited as perhaps uh, example 1A or a book of the Bible that attempts to do theodicy. And in that book, we discovered that Job doesn't give us all of the answers to the problem of evil and suffering, but it does rule out a couple of explanations. It rules out that all of evil and suffering can be traced to human sin. Job rules that out. It also rules out the possibility that God has to answer to powers above him that God has to answer to karma or God has to answer to the retribution principle, that God governs the universe by some principle that's beyond him. It also rules that out. But what about the rest of the biblical text? Let's let's take an overview of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God accepts culpability for evil and suffering. We could call this, I'll, we'll use a term here, and we'll call this a, a, a monistic theodicy. So monism meaning singular, a singular source, and theodicy, again, we defined that term in the previous episode coming from Gottfried Leibniz. Monistic theodicy. In the Old Testament, we see God accepting culpability for evil and suffering. At at times, it seems as if he explicitly does it. At other points, moral agents, we could say both human and angelic, seem to carry out his will. One example of this as a, a moral agent, an angelic moral agent, would be the angel of death. Now, Frequently, when people hear about the angel of death, one of the first things they might think of is, uh, you know, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. That was a favorite in our house. We watched it a million times, right? And 
there's this uh, shadowy angel of death. Actually, if we go to the biblical text, um, you know, Yahweh, the Lord, is actually credited in the text with the killing of the firstborn in Egypt than those who did not have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. So, that might not be an incidence where we could say, uh, point to the angel of death. But there are others which are a little bit more clear that there is a death angel that uh, is a moral agent carrying out the will of God in, this, in the Old Testament. One example of this is in 2 Kings 19. In this scene... The death angel kills 185,000 men in Sennacherib's Assyrian army. Another example of a moral agent doing what we would call evil and creating suffering and it being attributed to God's will in the Old Testament is the example of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. In Jeremiah 27 verse 6, God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. This is troubling for so many of us, right? We, we, we read the Old Testament and, and God, God seems to pretty clearly accept culpability for evil and suffering. Sometimes it's him doing the actual suffering, as in the case of the plagues. Other times, there are moral agents, angelic and human, that are carrying out his will and bringing about devastation and suffering. For most people today, this, these incidents are some of the most troubling in all of the Bible. It, it perplexes people and and it's caused many people to lose faith. It's, it's frequently the, the target of people like uh, new atheists like Richard Dawkins, who considers the God of the Bible, in particular the God of the Old Testament, to be a, a, a quote, moral monster. Then there are others on the other side of the spectrum, those that are philosophers, even like William Lane Craig, who I think holds to some pretty evangelical commitments, including trying to hold fast to the inspiration and maybe even inerrancy of, of, of Scripture. And for a guy like William Lane Craig, his workaround is to point to things like the genocide of the Canaanite people and simply go, that isn't evil because God commands it. It's called divine command theory. If God commands it, even though it may appear like it's evil and suffering, it is not evil and suffering. This is also a troubling explanation for people. But the question still remains, why? Why does God in the Old Testament seemingly accept culpability for evil and suffering, even seemingly being the cause of it? Well, there's at least four explanations for why this is the case. First, God actually is not just the primary cause of everything, but perhaps he is the secondary cause of all things, including evil and suffering. And the difference, the categorical philosophical difference between a primary cause, we could say, and this goes back to Aquinas as one of the best examples for explaining the difference between a primary cause and a secondary cause, that God is 
the primary cause of all things, in that he is the ground of being. There is no creation separate from a creator without him willing a creation into existence. So in that sense, yes, okay, everything is caused by God because there is no cause beyond God. But is God actually the secondary cause of evil and suffering? One explanation for God accepting culpability for evil and suffering in the Old Testament is that he actually is the secondary cause of all evil and suffering. Another different explanation might be that God maybe just temporarily accepted ultimate culpability, even though there may be secondary causations. Why would he do this? He would do this perhaps to pull Israel out of its cultural polytheism. God needed to do this perhaps just for a temporary time. He needed to accept ultimate culpability, even for horrific evils, because Israel was so tempted to be led astray by their polytheistic neighbors. And the biggest temptation was whose God was in control. In a world of competing gods and rival gods, Yahweh needed to reveal himself as having no rival. So in order to do that, Maybe he, for a temporary period, accepts the ultimate culpability, even though there actually may be other secondary causes that he actually isn't willing to have happen, that he's not willing this evil to happen outside of perhaps the willing of all things existing. So maybe he's just doing this so that Israel... You know, maybe if he told them, no, there's other causes for evil and suffering in the world beyond me. I'm not doing this. Maybe beyond isn't the right word, but I am not actively choosing to bring this thing about. Perhaps they wouldn't have been able to handle that at that point in their development. Remember, the biggest competitor to God in the ancient Near Eastern world of of ancient Israel is not like secularism. It's not naturalism. It's different gods who do seem to them to be very real and to have very real authority in the world. So how could God pull them out of that? Perhaps even by saying, no, 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 no. These gods, you need to learn these gods are powerless. That, that, that I am ultimately over all. There is no God above me. God has no rival. So in order to do that, maybe for a time, God intentionally accepted ultimate culpability. That's, that's another possible explanation. A third explanation some people give for why it appears that God accepts culpability for evil and suffering, for why it seems like a monistic theodicy is the best theodicy, Another reason people give is that perhaps in captivity and into the second temple period, Israel sees that God is working in other cultures to reveal truth about himself and reality. And then, and then perhaps they then integrate and adapt those explanations into their own culture. New ideas like a post-mortem, post-mortem judgment and New ideas like the resurrection of the dead, which are clearly nowhere 
to be found in the Pentateuch. They're not found throughout the scriptures until the Old Testament scriptures, until you get into the later texts. You get hints of these things. And and even well beyond the later texts into our intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, this explanation, for those that have been raised in evangelical contexts and holding to things like the inerrancy of, of Scripture and a particular theology of culture, this can feel like an explanation that, they, that you may want to dismiss right away. Your initial reaction to something like this might be to say, hang on a second, are you trying to say that there's the possibility that the Greeks or the Persians or even the Babylonians, those wicked Babylonians that, that, that somehow God was speaking to them too, even in some ways that Israel was getting wrong? That, that seems like a problem. But if we go back to our Christ and culture series, I, I think I think we shouldn't have a massive problem with this concept. God has been re- attempting to reveal himself to all peoples at all times. There is no cultureless theology. God's revelation to us always is communicated to us within the cultural context that we live in. Now, does that mean that in some way that's the let's let's say for example that Israel while they're in Babylonian captivity while they are in exile while they have become passed down from one empire to the next as property and they're interacting with these different people groups that that somehow an idea that these people held to is something like, for example, the resurrection of the dead, which is really clear, guys. Like that is not in the purview of of the Old Testament authors. It's not in the purview of the Old Testament authors until you get to maybe places like uh, hints of this in books like Daniel, Isaiah, for example. But early on, you know, we've talked about this in uh, in when we looked at Job, you know, Job just saw death as like the end. It was rest. It was, there was no hope for Job that perhaps justice would be done for him in an afterlife or in a resurrection of the dead. That, that just wasn't, that just wasn't there. Does that mean that there are equal truths, if you were to somehow read an ancient uh, Near Eastern sacred text that it's on the same level of truth as the Old Testament scriptures. No, I'm not saying that. Absolutely not. What I am saying, though, is that God has a way of revealing himself through our culture. And what became part of Israel's culture was the cultures that they were inhabiting and surrounding. And part of that journey into exile might have been providentially designed by God to uh, get Israel to see perhaps things that in their limited exposure to other Near Eastern peoples that they couldn't see about God and reality. I'm not claiming that that's the best explanation. I'm just saying we shouldn't dismiss that. That's one possible explanation. But they do this and then they integrate and they adapt some of those into into the story, they adapt ideas, again, like a postmortem judgment. And even 
sort of more dualistic theodicies like the Persians had with Zoroastrianism. And even some of the body-soul dualisms of the especially popular, right, in in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. Again, this is just one option. Perhaps it's not the best one. Perhaps it's incorrect. But it's at least one way people who wrestle with this question about why does it seem like God accepts culpability for evil and suffering, and then in the New Testament we see something different, something that seems very sharp contrast, different than the monistic theodicy uh, that appears to be the case in the Old Testament. A fourth possible explanation for why there seems to be this sharp difference between God accepting ultimate culpability, culpability for evil and suffering in the world in the Old Testament, and the sort of cosmic conflict worldview we see in the New Testament, a more of a dualistic theodicy, is that one possible explanation is that before the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, people would have been powerless to do anything about Satan, demons, and malevolent principalities and powers. God didn't see fit to give them the complete picture in the Old Testament because it only would have filled them with fear and and possibly even led them back into polytheism. I mean, what are you going to do about Satan if you are still under the power of Satan and death? can't do much of anything. Sure, there were temporary anointings of leaders with the Holy Spirit, but there wasn't the indwelling of the Spirit like we see post-Pentecost in the New Testament. And of course, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus seems to do a radical change to what is possible for humanity. Humanity can have now union with God in Christ. They can be indwelt with the Spirit. And then they are then sent out as Jesus' disciples and apostles, as we see in the Gospels and the book of Acts, to go and do the things Jesus does in the world. Was that not possible in the Old Testament? Well, maybe for somehow a temporary few could do certain things. But again, we don't see pictures of demons being cast out of people. Why is that? Well, this fourth explanation, possible explanations, I should say, is maybe God couldn't reveal it to them then because he knew it would have filled them with fear. They would have been powerless to do anything about it. And perhaps, again, they'd get led back into polytheism thinking that there are you know, rivals, that God has a, a rival to his ultimate authority. So let's review those four explanations, possible explanations for for why God accepts culpability for evil and suffering throughout the Old Testament. Possibility number one is that God is actually doing it, and that's just the way it is. Possibility number two is that God has to accept temporary culpability, even though there are maybe other secondary causations, to temporarily pull Israel out of its cultural polytheism. Possible explanation number three 
is that while that might have been the case, maybe that's all Israel could have seen as Israel gets exposed to different cultures that God has also possibly been revealing himself to and facets of himself, even though there's a lot of deception in those cultures too, maybe there are some truths and some truths that Israel was unable to see. Truths like post-mortem judgment, the resurrection of the dead, etc. The fourth possible explanation is that perhaps before the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, powerless people, people powerless to the reality of Satan, demons, and malevolent spirits, would have lived in fear their entire lives, powerless to do anything about it. Maybe God just didn't see fit to reveal more of these secondary causes for evil and suffering. As we talked about in the first episode, and one of the reasons why we're exploring, you know, as we just as we just did some of the the perplexing questions about why it seems like God accepts all uh, culpability for evil and suffering in the Old Testament, why that that seems to be a shocking, more of a shocking thing to many Christians, is because the picture that we have in the New Testament does seem to be a dramatic shift. Again, while there are zero references to demonic principalities in the Old Testament, while there are zero mentions of possession, and while there are limited mentions of a Satan, and as we've talked about before, it's doubtful that the Satan even mentioned in the Old Testament is intended to be the same character or principality in the New Testament, When we get to the New Testament, we see that there are 568 references to Satan or demons. There is an obvious, sharp contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the problem of evil. It's okay to confess that. That doesn't make you a Marcionite. It's just acknowledging the realities of the text. This dramatic shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament is one of the distinct features of Christianity compared to Judaism today. As Charlene P.E. Burns says in her work that I have been using throughout this podcast or this particular series, a book entitled Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory, Burns says, and I quote, Satan plays virtually no role in mainstream Jewish theology today. If Jews only hold to the Old Testament as sacred, inspired text, and they reject the New Testament, and Satan plays little to no role in Jewish theology today, we have to confess that this is one of the sharp differences of the New Testament. We have to confess that there are, it, it's, it's clearly observable. There are 568 references to Satan or demons in the New Testament. There are no mentions of demons, demonic possession, demonic influence, and, and sickness in the Old Testament whatsoever. This is a sharp contrast, which leads people to ask the question, all right, why the difference? What happened between the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And this used to perplex scholars. It was like, 
what in the world happened here? <laughs> you know, how do we how do we go from you know the whole? Just take the Exodus story for example, and there's some awful things that happen in the Exodus story. Satan's not mentioned one time. No mention of demons. Again, everything God accepts culpability for all of the incidences of evil and suffering. And then you get into the New Testament, and it's like. Jesus is casting out demons, and we're going to talk more about this towards the end of this pod- podcast, this episode. But uh, you know, he's he's casting out demons, and he's healing sick people, and saying that these sick people have been tormented by Satan, and it's, it's a sharp contrast. Well, how did this happen? This used to really perplex scholars because they're like, well, when did this? When did this idea enter into the story? Because obviously, it was normal enough. It was a normal enough feature of the the first century worldview for uh, Jewish people, people in that, uh, in the not so ancient, but still ancient Near Eastern context in which Jesus is doing his ministry and the, the gospels are written and the New Testament writings are collected. Well, we used to really scratch our head, but there's... There was a significant discovery in the 1940s, and probably most of you are familiar with this, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were a RA collection of Jewish writings from the late 3rd century BC all the way through AD 70. That's when um, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, and you know that's where the writings stop. And as we look at those writings, we can kind of see the development of these different pictures for the problem of evil. Without them, it's really hard to make sense. It's possible that during this time, influences like the exposure to Zoroastrianism while Israel was under Persian influence, and Zoroastrianism is a very dualistic theology. Fun side note, Freddie Mercury's parents of the queen fame, his parents were uh, practiced Zoroastrianism. That's a fun little fact for you. (laughs) So Zoroastrianism in ancient Persia was a very dualistic theodicy and theology in which there was a good God and a a rival evil God, a rival evil force. So perhaps during that time, you know, exposure to Zoroastrianism made a God use that in Israel's journey to make them aware of what they weren't aware of. And that was the presence of Satan and demonic forces. That's again, one possible explanation, right? So again, you know, some people may see influences of Zoroastrian Persian thought in these Dead Sea Scrolls. We also see in these Dead Sea Scrolls that at least to some extent, there was a, a genre of literature that became influential and very popular during that intertestamental Second Temple period. And it's this genre is actually, understanding this genre is actually key to understanding books like the Book of Revelation. It's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature uses extreme pictures. It's kind of like the the comic book movies of 
the uh, the ancient world. It uses extreme, extravagant pictures that seem to go far beyond anyone's experiences of reality, but they're used in ways to tell a very real story. Apocalyptic literature during this time that we have uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls explains the problem of evil in a unique and new way compared to the Old Testament. The apocalyptic literature explains the problem of evil by assigning blame to fallen angels and demons in their role of leading humanity astray. Two of the most important texts from this era are First Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. And as I've joked on this podcast before, <laughs> here seems to be my regular fulfillment, my fulfillment of my regular quota to bring up the Nephilim. <laughs> and yes, we're going to get some Nephilim talk here. So bu buckle up your seatbelts. This is this apocalyptic stuff from the intertestamental second temple period is wild. It's some, I mean, just, and I, again, I want to be clear. I don't think these texts are inspired in any way. I don't think they're on par with Christian scripture in any way, but I do think they're important to understanding perhaps the, the development of things uh, 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 thought during this time, because there's a clear change in the way people thought in the New Testament from what they, how they thought in the Old Testament about the problem of evil. All right, so let's buckle up. Let's get into this wild stuff here, all right? In First Enoch, which was, which was written sometime in the third century BC, though some scholars suggest evidence that there was some later additions to the the first Enoch. In, in first Enoch, this is such a wild book. I've talked about this several times before, going all the way back even to my time on um, jumping in on, on Greg Boyd's podcast with, with Dan Kent, um, doing Greg Boyd's apologies and explanations. This is even just for sheer entertainment value, this book is worth a read. It's like, you know, it is like reading a, a comic book movie or something from Tolkien. So in First Enoch, we see sort of two theodicy myths that, that, that help try to give some sort of explanation for the problem of evil. In the first myth, the watchers or the sons of God rebel against God and, and, and they're led by a rebellious, rebellious leader, a rebellious a rebellious fallen angel. So you have one fallen watcher who is kind of like over the group, the leader of the rebellion, the le leader of the rebellion against God. And in this first myth in en in First Enoch, that a rebellious uh, leader is named Shemihaza, and and, and Shemihaza with these these fallen angels come into the world and they, you know, if you're listening to this with kids, maybe have them leave, leave the room for a moment or pause, cover up, the, cover up their ears. The, these fallen angels in the story actually mate with women. And, and these women then produce babies somehow, don't ask me the biology on this. That's not part of the story here. But the fallen angels mate with human women 
and their offspring are the race of giants or the Nephilim. And it's so interesting. You do get a hint of this. This is actually included in the biblical text in Genesis 6, right before the flood. There's this short little blurb about the sons of, da, sons of God finding the daughters of women to be beautiful and then having intercourse with them and then producing the Nephilim. Uh, it's so strange, right? Such a strange, strange picture. But this is, this is a, again, uh, Genesis was written much, much earlier than First Enoch. First Enoch is written in the third century BC, but it's still, this is a important story because it's part of this intertestamental uh, period. So these Nephilim are violent. They're warmongers, and they, they actually threaten to destroy creation and even destroy each other. And this, is a, in a certain sense, is kind of one explanation for the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Fallen angels, these watchers, they rebel against God and they bring about terrible things in the world. In the second backstory myth in Enoch, these, these watchers are led by another fallen angel named Azel. And these, these fallen angels teach humans how to mine and to make weapons and perform magic. And, and even, oddly enough to us today, they even teach women how to do their makeup in order to seduce men. Crazy picture, right? But it gives these ancient people uh, some sort of backstory for explaining maybe how evil and suffering enter the world. Again, the watchers do it. They, the watchers lead humans astray. The fallen angels lead humans astray. Then they, they actually are the ones that teach people how to do these things that like mining and making weapons and performing magic and the art of seduction and all of this stuff. So then, so then humans, you know, some of the righteous humans cry out to God for help and God sends a flood and then charges the archangels Raphael and Michael to bind up the fallen angels, to bind these fallen angels in, in the underworld and what is essentially, you know, Tartarus, right? Now that's a Greek word, a Greek concept. Um, perhaps some of the Greek influence has already, you know, has entered in, affected the cosmology of the ancient Near Eastern Israelites. Who knows? But these rebellious followers are bound up in Tartarus in an underworld until a day of judgment. Now, the Nephilim die. So just to make this clear, we've got a, a a judgment on two categories here. We've got a judgment on the watchers, the fallen angels, and they are bound up. They are spirit in nature and they get bound up in the underworld, in Tartarus, awaiting the day of judgment. But as the Nephilim are judged and they die out, they are part mortal, right? Having been born from human women. Again, crazy, you know, Tolkien sort of stuff here sci-fi fantasy stuff. It's fun, it's wild, but it's an interesting insight into, into the, the, the world that, the worldview that makes up uh, the first century in which the gospels and the epistles and the ministry of Jesus takes place. So the Nephilim die because they're part mortal, having been born from women, but their spirits remain on the earth and they remain to torment people until the final judgment. These spirits are 
the demons. Really, really intriguing, interesting insight into maybe at least one of the books that affected the the worldview of people living in the first century in, in Palestine and Israel. The other book that I mentioned, the Book of Jubilees, dates to the mid-2nd century BC, and it, it tells a similar story of the Watchers, as the, the Watchers are the source of evil on the earth. The angelology of Jubilees is actually quite similar to that of the New Testament, and so... Um, you know, it's interesting to compare this sort of angelology in, in the book of Jubilees to that, that, that which we see in the New Testament. In, in Jubilees, the angels are created when God creates the earth, and they're created to serve as messengers who are there to instruct humans in how to live rightly and righteously in the world. But some of these angels instead lust after women and they have intercourse with them and produce giants as their offspring. It's, you know, almost the same story as Enoch. God sends these fallen angels to what again is essentially Tartarus, a similar thing. They go to the underworld, they go to Tartarus, they're bound there. But in this story, God allows for some reason one-tenth of the giant spirits to remain on earth at the pleading of the lead fallen angel, who is known as the instigator or the Satan. So in Jubilee, it's, um, it's, he is you know, essentially named as Satan, leader of the fallen angels. But for some reason in this story, one-tenth of the giant spirits are allowed to remain on earth for some particular purpose. So again, whereas the Old Testament seems to have a monistic theodicy, the intertestamental literature, at least insofar as what we've been able to recover, this second temple period, the period between Malachi and Matthew, we seem to see a more of a dualistic theodicy, a cosmic conflict unfold as the explanation for the problem of evil in the world. Again, maybe, maybe decades from now, some new archaeological treasure trove will be uncovered that provides us insights into this intertestamental second temple period that just provide more clues as to the development of this rather different way of explaining evil and suffering in the world that we see in the New Testament compared, compared with the Old Testament. Maybe we'll find some other some other treasures out there, just like for so much of history, we didn't know this because we had not discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. But as of right now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are really the only things that we have to help piece this puzzle together. But it's not just in this intertestamental literature. It's not just in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we see a sort of cosmic dualism, a cosmic conflict. We actually see it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, very different from the Old Testament in this regard, there seems to be a clear individual moral agent called Diabolos in the Greek, which means slanderer or false accuser. 
The New Testament also refers to this Diablos or this Satan as Beelzebub or Baalzebub, linking Satan to one of the fallen principalities and powers in the ancient Semitic Baal religions practiced by Israel's Old Testament neighbors. He's also referred to as the prince of this world in the New Testament. He's also referred to as the evil one, the enemy, and and even referred to as a dragon in the book of Revelation. This Diablos, this Satan, he, he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. His demons are the causal agents behind sickness, possessions, or, you know, in some cases we might just consider them instances of mental illness. He enters Judas when Judas is about to betray Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul equates him to being the spiritual leader behind corrupt earthly powers. Paul, Paul sees Satan as being behind the blocking of his missionary ventures, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. And Paul promises the church in Rome that, quote, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16.20. How does Jesus, God in the flesh, God incarnate, how does Jesus respond to Satan and demons. Well, in Mark 1, 39, Mark summarizes Jesus's ministry in Galilee succinctly as saying that he, quote, went about preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Preaching and driving out demons. This is the central mission of Jesus. When Jesus is accused of being a messenger of Satan by the religious leaders in Matthew 12, Jesus responds by saying, quote, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Again, cosmic conflict here. This is so different than the Old Testament picture. This is, this is a, a picture of a collision of kingdoms. It does feel more dualistic than monistic. It's a cosmic conflict. Satan has a kingdom? Really? <laughs> and Jesus seems to be in a collision course against this kingdom. Clash of kingdoms. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that Satan comes to take away the word of God that's planted in people. And in Luke 13, Jesus says that it is Satan who has bound a woman who was crippled for 18 years. Why is she suffering? Jesus says, Satan. Satan is the one that is causing her suffering. He is the one behind it. He's the one that's caused her suffering for the past 18 years. And then what does he do? Well, he doesn't just leave her in his suffering. And we we don't actually see Jesus give any explanation here or anywhere else in the gospels of saying, well, this is actually God doing this for some sort of higher purpose to teach you a lesson, to correct you because of your sins. No, Jesus says, Satan's bound this woman and he heals her. There is not a single incident 
of sickness recorded in all of the Gospels that Jesus attributes to the work of God for some higher purpose. Luke summarizes Jesus' message in the book of Acts, chapter 10, as, quote, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. 1 John 3.8 summarizes Jesus' mission by saying, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And if we were to build an atonement theology <laughs> based on Jesus' own words about the cross, it might sound different than some of the common ways that people understand the cross. In John 12 and John 16, Jesus clearly equates his coming work on the cross as judgment on, quote, the prince of this world. The prince of this world? Really? How has Satan become the prince of this world? Jesus isn't alone and calling him that. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What do we do with this? In the New Testament, a picture of a cosmic conflict in the Old Testament, a, a, a picture of a, of a God who is the, the, the causal agent in everything. As Isaiah 45 says, God speaking through the prophet, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do all these things. Now, the problem here is no new problem. The seemingly sharp contrast and difference between Jesus and the Gospels and a God who says, I make peace and create evil is something that Christians from the very beginning have wrestled with. One of the things that this problem does is it, it calls into question what should be our hermeneutic control for interpreting scripture? What should be our hermeneutic lens for reading the entirety of the biblical narrative? Most of our functional denominational differences about how people respond to problems like sickness and disease, how they respond to incidents of evil in the world, can be summarized as differences in their hermeneutic control. Some like Pentecostals and Charismatics and maybe even you might say Anabaptists see the hermeneutic control being the Gospels and maybe the Book of Acts or the New Testament in general. And they use that as their hermeneutic lens for interpreting questions about the problem of evil and suffering throughout the rest of the Bible. In many ways, those traditions reflect a sort of cosmic dualism, especially among Charismatics and Pentecostals. This influences not just their theology, 
but their missiology. It influences their daily practices. It influences their liturgy and their worship because they see themselves caught up in a cosmic struggle, a struggle in which Christ's mission in the world is to defeat evil, to defeat Satan, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. And so they feel very passionate about that, and they feel very strongly that God's intentions for reality are to always heal the sick, to always raise the dead, to always cast out demons. On the other hand, there are those who use more of the monistic theodicy of the Old Testament, or the apparent, at least, uh, monistic theodicy of the Old Testament as their hermeneutic control. There might be some more in the Reformed camp or sort of the, a lot of the neo-Calvinists. Think of people like John Piper, for example, and one of the great examples of this stark difference between how people interpret the scriptures and then how that influences their own theodicy I've always referred to back when the 35W bridge collapsed here in Minneapolis. John Piper's response and Greg Boyd's response, both pastors here and actually pastors at the time in the same denomination, both pastors here in the Twin Cities have a very different hermeneutic control for interpreting scripture. Boyd's tends to, not tends to, but is very much. I mean, he's written books, and we'll explore Boyd's work uh, later in this series. But Boyd's work is very much a dualistic theodicy. It's a cosmic conflict. It's what he calls a warfare worldview. Whereas Piper tends to lean more towards a Augustinian perspective. It's, it's more of a hermeneutic lens that emphasizes a kind of monism. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But whose hermeneutic is correct? How do we be able to figure out which hermeneutic is right? These are tough questions, and these are questions that theologians, Christians have wrestled with for the past two millennia. Should we seek to harmonize these distinct pictures? Is there a way that we can harmonize the Old and the New Testament, that we can harmonize what seems to be a sort of monistic theology with theodicy with a dualistic theodicy. Is there a way to make these mesh? And, well, okay, maybe, maybe we just go with one over the other. Let's say we go with the dualistic one. Well, does that make us a Marcionite? Are we then rejecting the Old Testament? Are we saying that God of the Old Testament is not the true God, that he is not the God that Christ has incarnated. Some troubling problems with that, right? What if it is just this cosmic dualism? Still doesn't answer the problem of why does Satan exist at all? And for those who might lean more towards this monistic theodicy, does that make Jesus the arsonist firefighter? Is Christ's ministry in the Gospels just him putting out fires that God has actually caused to show his power, to show that he is God? Is it simply that? And and how does this sort of monistic theodicy affect how you respond 
the evil and suffering and sickness in your daily life? These are great questions. These are questions that we're going to continue to wrestle with. And and we're going to move into, in our next episode, we're going to explore, start exploring how Christians throughout history have wrestled with what should be our hermeneutic control. What is the best explanation for the problem of evil? Well, gang, thanks for listening in. I really want to hear your feedback and questions and engage in conversation. Again, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. Put a link for that in the description. I also put a link in the description to the references I've used in this uh, podcast, the one I'm, I've used the most. I've, I've mentioned that book by uh, Charlene P.E. Burns. Um, it's a very good historical survey, and we're going to be kind of going through uh, that more in the upcoming episodes. I try not to really like timestamp these with particular, you know, things happening in daily life in our world. Um, because I'd hope that this would be a podcast people could go to and come back to 20 years from now and still find stuff relevant here. But I do want to share with you guys that at the end of this month in October, October 27th, I'm, I'm going to be speaking at Hope Community in Corcoran, Minnesota. Uh, we're going to, they're hosting a, uh, a theology and philosophy night, and I'm going to be speaking at that. We're going to be tackling some tough questions. Um, one, wonderful listener to this program is going to be hosting an interview with me and there's probably going to be some Q&A stuff happening um, between you know people in the audience so uh, I'll put a link for that in my, the description as well again October, Sunday October 27th I believe it's a 5 p.m. Uh, start time at Hope Community in Corcoran Minnesota for those of you that live in the Twin Cities and, and want to come out uh, to, to that also want to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, hopefully, you guys can pick up on uh, putting a lot of a lot of work and a lot of research into this. Um, you know, this is essentially a kind of giving a undergrad or even a graduate level class in the, the problem of evil. And so, um, I'm really thankful for those of you that see value in this work and, and are willing to support it financially. I, I really am thankful for each of you. I want to give particular thanks to uh, one of our most consistent and generous supporters, Paul. Thank you again, Paul, for your support this podcast. There's others like Sam and Elizabeth as well. Thank you for your extra special contributions. It, uh, it, it mean, means the world to me. Uh, I also want to invite you guys to, if you can, possibly leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a, a great way for people to discover the podcast and be able to learn from it and to maybe even connect with each other and uh, share meaningful dialogue about these important questions that we're wrestling with. So again, I hope to hear from you guys. I'd love to hear what you've learned from today's podcast. Points of agreement, points of disagreement are always welcome too. Where do you land more? What's been more of your sort of hermeneutic control? Have you been in a camp that's led, leaned more towards a sort of, um, we might say, Old Testament-centric hermeneutic control or a more uh, New Testament-centric hermeneutic control, have you found ways of harmonizing that together? Is there something in your tradition, in your church's context that has helped people piece this together and integrate these somehow? I'd love to hear from you. Looking forward to the, the rest of this series. We're going to start getting into 
some of the, the great theologians throughout church's history in our, in our upcoming episodes. So love to hear from you guys. Reach out to me. And until next time, we'll talk again.